What's the hardest test that you have ever endured? Perhaps for some it might have been boot camp or a bar exam, maybe the SAT or GRE. Perhaps it was anatomy class or even the seventh grade science fair here at St. Peter. I don't know if this is absolutely true or if it was more an urban legend, but an undergraduate when I was at Concordia Ann Arbor, I remember a conversation I had one time with a friend named Josh. We were talking about hard college classes and he was sharing that his friend was at another college in their psychology class and for their final exam, the students walked in, picked up the packet off the professor's desk, went back to their seats, opened up the exam, right, turned the first page over, and on the entire psychology final, there was only one word. It was the question, why? So Josh explained that several of the students were starting to pour over that. How do we answer that on this final? Oh my goodness, my grade. What have we covered in this semester that maybe I could use to try to answer that one word, why? And Josh shared that his friend thought about that for a second while all these other students were pouring over and probably just trying to write a bunch of baloney and hope it covered it. He wrote two words and put his test back, put it on the professor's desk, and walked out. And his two words were, why not? What's the hardest test you've ever endured? Maybe there were some of you who went to a deeper level, and when I raised that question, thought of a battle with cancer, or divorce, or infertility, or a broken heart. As we start to read through the book of Job, it's going to seem like a very hard test. And there are some places in here, we'll get to a couple today, that can even make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. And no doubt... This book answers many questions for us, but it raises many questions at the same time. Questions like, why do horrendous events happen to even devout Christians? Where is God when life hurts? Why would Yahweh, the Lord, point Job out to Satan, even in a way set him up? I remember one of our professors at the seminary telling us, don't let God off the hook here. And those were some hard words to sit with. Or what's the higher purpose behind our hardship and suffering? Or, or is there one? These are some questions that we'll work through in the next nine sermons on weekend and through Holy Week. Today, as we look into the first chapter, it really sets the stage for the other 41 chapters that follow. 
as it introduces us to the main character here, and of course it's Job. The particular questions that will guide us this morning is, what do these first 12 verses, what do they teach us about Job? And what do they teach us about the spiritual realm, this very real realm that we can't see, but is just as real as what's going on down here now? And what do these verses teach us about Yahweh, the Lord, our God? And how about ourselves? Regardless of if we're in a good season right now, things are going smoothly in life, or maybe we have been in a very dark pit. We're about to open these first five verses. That's kind of Act 1 in chapter 1 here. And before we start looking at Job, I want to paint this picture in our minds to help us take these words in more fully. Job is going to be pictured to us, again, the main character is introduced here, as just a man of character and integrity. And Job is a man of faith and faithfulness. He's a man of many children and very vast wealth. And he is also a man of worship and prayer and spiritual headship for his family. With that in mind, let's look at this first section. We're told there was a man in the land of Uz. His name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, a fear of God, meaning holding God in reverence and awe. And he turned away from evil. He didn't just talk the talk, but he was walking the walk with God. And there were born to him seven sons and three daughters, very rich heritage, and his livestock included 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of cattle, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And we're told that that man was greater than all the other sons of the east. And now it zooms in on his children, his ten children. We're told that his sons went and made a feast. In the house of each one, each brother, on his perhaps birthday. And they sent and they called for their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And though what was probably the seven-day feast, when it had run its course, Job sent and he would consecrate all of his children rising early in the morning, making a burnt offering for all of them, for he said, perhaps when my children got together for a good time again, perhaps they have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. So he consecrated them and made sin offerings for them. And we're told, thus Job did this every time they had these festival days. So again, we just see this incredible man of character and faith and spiritual headship. In today's context, he would be the unanimous Walter Payton Man of the Year. Not sinless, as those burnt offerings and stuff show, 
but truly a man of God as a husband and father and employer and trader and follower of Yahweh. And so while we see this picture of Job and his family going on down here on earth, the cycle of these feasts, the cycle of him offering worship and prayer and consecrating his children, there's another whole plane, another whole reality going on at the same time. We might say above us. And this is the spiritual realm. And Job has no idea while all of this is going on with his family down here, what is playing out in the heavens between God and Satan. And even though we can't see it, this spiritual realm is just as real for us today. Here's what it says. The day came when the sons of God, talking about the angels stationed themselves before Yahweh. And while all those angels came and stood before God, we're told the Satan also came in their midst. He too is an angel, a fallen angel. I put the Satan because every time the Hebrew text mentions Satan here in this section, it puts the in front because there is one, right? So while Satan is in the midst, we're told that Yahweh said to the Satan, From where have you come? And the Satan answered Yahweh from roaming around on the earth and from walking to and fro on it. A couple things here. Note, the day came. That implies that God had appointed a day when all of the angels would come and station themselves before him, kind of have like a heavenly council. And they would probably report on their activities as well as receive new assignments from God. And on that particular day that God had set for this to happen, the Satan came in their midst as well. And God's question, did God know where Satan had come from? Of course. But for some reason, God gave him space to talk in their counsel. And Satan says, from roaming around on the earth and going to and fro, what's Satan doing down here when he's roaming about and going to and fro? Is he down here just taking a nature hike? Down here admiring all of God's handiwork? Is he sort of laying on a beach somewhere, perhaps on the shores of Devil's Lake in southern Michigan? No. He's down here preying on us and our sin and our failings and plotting evil wherever he can. Remembers Peter's words, who knew firsthand, 1 Peter 5, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Not much has changed in Satan's game plan and activities in three, four, five thousand years. When he's going around on this earth, he's got one intent. He's on the prowl for you, for me, 
looking for our sin and failures and wherever he can plot evil and carry it out. That's all that he does. So he tells God what he's been up to. Verse 8 is one of those shockers. Why in the world would God do this? God continues their conversation. Yahweh said to the Satan, Have you set your heart on my servant Job? For there is not a man like him on the earth. And God affirms what we read about Job in verse 1. He is blameless and upright. He is a fearer, a worshiper of God. And he turns away from evil. Satan, have you set your heart on my servant Job? Why would God pick Job out like that? And say, Satan, what about him? Have you looked at him? It's almost in a way like a thief walking into a jewelry store and the owner saying, hey, have you seen my most valuable diamond? Come, let me show it to you. Why in the world would God point out Job to Satan like that and in a way set Job up. Satan answers. And this is the question of the book. Does Job fear God for no reason? And Satan continues, have you yourself, God, not put around Job a hedge? a protection around him and his house and all that he has? Have you not blessed the work of his hands so much, God, that you have also increased his livestock on the earth? What is Satan doing here when God says, have you looked at Job? Satan's trying to call Cap bluff, on Job's faithfulness to God. Job is saying to God, of course he fears you, meaning holds you in reverence and awe, God. Look what you've done in his life. You've put this little protective bubble around him and his house and his family and his belongings. And you've incredibly blessed the work of his hands with an immense wealth. Of course he's going to fear you, God. Look what you've done for the man. You feel where Satan's going next? Satan continued. However, God, stretch out your hand and touch all that Job has and see, God, if Job won't curse you to your face. Satan puts a challenge to God. Come on, God. Of course he fears you. Because you look what you've given him. Look what you've protected him by. But God, take that away. Take your hedge of protection off from Job and all that he has. Let me at him. Let me do what I do best and sift him like wheat. 
And then God, I bet you, after I'm done with him, he will curse you to your face. In other words, Satan is challenging that the only reason Job fears God is because of what Job is receiving from God. But take that away, God. And I think you'll see his inner self. And then verse 12 is just as shocking <laughs> as verse 8 was. Yahweh says to the Satan, Behold, all which is to Job is in your hand, Satan. Only, God puts a boundary here, you shall not stretch out your hand against Job personally. And Job went, or Satan went out from before Yahweh. That's real Bible right there. Think Satan took very long once God said he was going to pull off that protective hedge around Job? Think Satan took very long to leave God's court and go down on earth and start ravaging Job? No. And that's what you will look at next week when you finish chapter 1. But what are some things we can take from this first scene to our lives this week as well as for the rest of the book that we'll look at? The first one, the text is just impressing upon us again the reality of the Satan. He is the archenemy of God, the cause of evil and suffering in this world, and he is the enemy of the church. But Luther reminds us in his Reformation hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, that one little word has already fell him, and that is the name Jesus. And try and he's, as he might, scowl fierce as he will, he can take everything from us, but he can't take the Lord. And when Jesus ascends back into heaven to the right hand of God, something dramatic happens in that spiritual realm that we can't see. Revelation chapter 12 tells us that once Jesus ascended to heaven, he appointed Michael the archangel to take Satan and throw him out of his presence, out of that heavenly court, so he can only go around now on this earth. Why? Because we have a new mediator between God and man now, and that is his son, Jesus Christ. Satan now is no longer allowed in God's heavenly counsel to accuse us of our sins and failings. Because we have Jesus before the Father. Secondly, Job in a real way points beyond himself to Jesus Christ. Job was blameless and upright and a fearer of God and turning away from evil in his life, but he was not sinless. But there was one person who in the fullest way was truly blameless and upright and a fearer of God and turned away from evil so much that Jesus never sinned once. 
And even though God put a protective shield around Job's life, Satan could touch everything but Job's life, God didn't put that boundary around his son. And on the cross, Satan would even snuff out the earthly life of Jesus Christ. But there's an empty tomb because Jesus lives. And Jesus lives, meaning that he continues to walk with you and with me every step of this journey to his kingdom. And Jesus also then knows now firsthand the deepest depths of our suffering and hardship here because he went through it too. And lastly, today's text reminds us that there is only one who is truly sovereign in heaven and earth and under the earth, and that is Yahweh. And through the rest of this book of Job, we are going to see, we get the assurance that this God is for us. Even when we are in the pit, even when we are in the dark valley like Job, this is the God who is always for us, not against us. And he is in his sovereignty working everything for our ultimate good. And that is to shape us to be more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. And there's no greater honor for us here than that God could shape us to the image of his own son. And all the while, as God knows that final us that he is leading us to, the final us, as he does with Job, he is right here as he is at this table today, strengthening our faith to persevere and to overcome. Because with Yahweh, it's victory. Your end, my end is victory in his kingdom forever. We'll have some questions coming up in our upper room time to help us reflect on these words and take it a little personal. Next week, I encourage you, if you want to work ahead, to read the rest of chapter 1 as we'll look at what Satan does now when God permits him to go to work, but only under God's hand.